Well, hello, everyone. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Megan. Uh, well, my name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here. And uh, this morning, I am very excited to continue our discussion on experiencing God. Um, we've talked about experiencing purpose and freedom and family. And last week, we talked about truth. Um, and this week, we're going to talk about love. And um, I'm, I'm very excited for this, um, but let me tell you that at the start of this conversation, um, my goal is to take the, the, the definition and the way we use love and just as, as lovingly and <laughs> as possible, um, just kind of murder it. Um, because the way we use the word love is, is very contradictory and very like, it's, uh, we, so um, I love Jess. I also love pizza, right? And I, I love pizza, but, but so like we eat a lot of Domino's in the youth ministry, and I, I don't love Domino's. Um, I tolerate Domino's, um, but what I love about Domino's is that I can get a large pizza for $6 with no tax, and I can order a whole bunch of those, and they work with us no matter how late in the day we order them. And so I love that, so I kind of love Domino's, but do I love Domino's? <laughs> no, um, no. The answer to that is no. I love steak, but I don't eat steak every single meal of the day. I eat other things. I eat a lot of things that I, I don't like because I'm told that, that they will, like I love being physically active as much as I can. And so I, I hopefully have a diet that will reflect that I can do that for a long time. Um, and so I don't love salad or lettuce, or vegetable. I, I don't love some of these things, but I still consume them, right? Because I, I, I want to be active in, in a, like, like for at least a few more years. I'm getting old. Um, I, you know, I, it's, I know, I know, it's my, it's my birthday today, and I'm, I'm 33, yeah, today. So, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's pretty near the end, 33. So, I, um, but I, I, I joke here, um, but, but when I think of birthdays, like, I, I love that it's, you know, like, I love what Jess does for me on my birthday. She'll, um, she's, like, I think we're having a cake and stuff. I don't know. I, I love that she didn't really tell me what we're doing, but she kind of did. Um, but, but so love can, can take on all these different ideas. Love can be a feeling. It can be an emotion. It can be an action. It can be something that we experience. It can be something that we give to someone else. It can be something that we hope for, something that we long for. We can do an action in love hoping that someone does something back for us in love. When Jess and I were first um, dating, we'd been dating about two months, um, and I did the most incredible date for her. Um, and I, I mentioned how incredible the date was because I forgot in the first service, but um, we did a choose-your-own-adventure book um, where she got to actually pick all the elements of the date. I had uh, reservations set up with like three different restaurants, so whatever choice she picked, I had a restaurant for. And like the, the book eventually got to the end, and on the, the final page when she got there, I told her, I love you. And Jess responded with, Huh. 
I need to think about it. Um, and she tells me I responded, oh, that just makes me love you more, um, which was some quick thinking on my devastated feet. Um, but, but there's a reality to this that sometimes when we say I love you to someone, our motive behind saying that maybe is less about I want to tell you that I love you and more about I really want to hear you say back to me I love you too right? That, that can be a thing. We can also do a loving action for someone. Like, I can start giving Jess a shoulder rub because I love her and because she just had a hard day. And, and like, a few minutes in, as she's saying, oh, this feels so good, I can be like, you know what? I want one of those. And so by the time I'm done giving her that shoulder rub, I'm like, hey, like, time to return the favor here. And so that action that started off so loving became a, well, I'll do this so she does it for me. And at that point, I, I don't know that I love anything but myself. Love is something we can feel and, and, and we can experience and all of these different things. But, but I think that the word we use for love, for the most part, is more of a picture of value and appreciation. And I think that the biblical ideal of love is very different than how we use the word. Now, my goal today, um, especially children, my goal today is not for you to come away saying, my parents don't really love me when they say they love me. But instead, my goal today is to help us see a picture of the love that God has for us and how all other love pales in comparison, but then to encourage us to follow after that example of love that God puts forward in the Bible. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Now, we thank you for this time that we have to just dig into your word together. Um, we thank you for your love. Uh, we thank you that by the end of today, I, if, if I don't mess up, Lord, we thank you that there is a tangible definition of your love and a beautiful picture of what that love looks like that we can rest in and we can have assurance from. And so I pray you would open all of our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds that we could just be hearing from your spirit. And I, I pray that you would speak through me and I pray that today that we would be deeply convicted where we do not recognize your love for what it is and where we settle for lesser love than what you offer us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we begin our conversation on love this morning, um, we're going to be in the book of First John. Now, First John was written by a guy named John. Um, that, that scholars argue about which John, but it's pretty clear if you study the language. There's, there's the book of John, written by John, who was one of Jesus's, like, disciples, and one of the three, like, main ones, because he'd always take Peter and James and John when he went, which is three of them. They were the ones up at the Transfiguration. They were, like, the inner circle of Jesus's disciples. John was one of them, and so, so it's that John who wrote the book of John, he also wrote 1 John, he also wrote 2 John, he also wrote 3 John, he also wrote Revelation. And, and what's really interesting is we talk about 1 John, we need to be aware of a little bit of the culture and, and a little bit of what was happening when he wrote this book. And, and um, this is confusing, but I, I'm pretty sure it's true, and I'm sure enough that I'm going to say it up here, even after what I said last week about truth, um, but I think the order of 1, 2, and 3 John is entirely based on the length of the books. And if you actually go look at them closely, you, you come away thinking 2 John, 3 John, 1 John. And, and the reason that this is important to note up front is because in 2 John, there was this, John is writing to these house churches and he's trying to give them, like in 2 John, he's telling them, hey, there are a lot of false teachers out there. 
and they are teaching you something besides the gospel, beware of them. Do not welcome them in to lead and to lead your house churches and, and to just warp truth in your midst. And then third John, John had to respond because at the end of second John, the negative that happened out of this is then when the brothers, who, like, like then when actual Christian teachers came in and tried to go talk to them, the response of the people was, we don't want you because we're not sure. And so then John writes a letter trying to tell them, hey, if they're brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ, you need to not shove them away. You need to invite them in. And so there's this tension that develops here because on the one hand, don't let a false teacher teach you. On the other hand, but you can't just close your doors. You can't be isolation churches that, that don't ever let anyone in because you're concerned that maybe they won't be truthful. So there's this idea that this tension that develops. And so then John writes the book of 1 John, where he develops two themes. Um, in, in 1 John, the first half of 1 John, there is this theme of God is light. And the idea is that if we want to follow after God, we should walk in the light because God is light. We should move away from the darkness towards the light. And um, there's this picture in First John um, in the, the first half of the book and in the second half of the book. So, so there's this idea, God is light in the first half of First John. And there are all of these ideas that just kind of orbit around God is light. And so he'll kind of go off and talk about something that feels like you're moving away from the guy, idea of God is light. And then he just brings it back. And he just keeps doing that around this idea of God is light. And the idea there is it's tied to truth and, and tied to recognizing the righteousness, the holiness, the perfection of God. And then we come to the second part of 1 John, and the second half of the book is entirely about the idea of God is love. And so there are these pictures of how we should love, but the idea that everything centers around is this idea that God is love. And, and what's really interesting is we talk about love today. If you've ever read, like C.S. Lewis has a book called The Four Loves, there's all these different ideas about different types of love. Um, I don't want to diminish any of those because there are, there are realities of how we love or there's going to be different ideas. But when John talks about love in, in 1 John, he uses one word for love the whole time. He uses a noun form and a verb form, and we'll talk about that a little as we go. But it is always built around the same idea. He is not building an idea of we love one way, God loves another, and other people love a different way, and there's a different way and a different way. He is building a picture of one type of love that God has perfectly embodied and that we should try and emulate and imitate as best as we can. And so as we start this conversation, I'm going to read the passage. If you've got your blue sheets, it's in there. And then after I read it, we're going to start digging into it together. So 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love of that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does, who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So as we talk about this image of love today, we're going to look both at what love is and what love is not from this passage. And as we go further and further in, by the end, I'm going to offer up a definition that I think kind of encompasses most of the ideas we're going to see in First John. It's a definition that I've used with our students from a retreat a long time ago we went on where we studied First John. But the goal as we start is we are looking at a picture, again, of the highest ideal of love. The love that is presented in First John, where, where God is, or John is trying to show us the love God has for us. This is the highest ideal of love. So as we read each of these, some of these are going to be hard, but when we recognize that this is the image of love that God has for us, I, I think it becomes very amazing and humbling as we think about the love that we have received from God. So at the start, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So the starting point, love is proof of our relationship with God. Love is proof of our relationship with God. How we know that, it says, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This idea of, of knowing God is something that we're going to see over and over and over in First John, the idea that we know who God is by his love and by the fact that he is light. And the idea of born, this is another phrase. When we say born-again Christians, it means that we've been born into the fa- like we've been born into God's family through the love of Jesus. And so the starting point of love, love is proof that we have a relationship with God. And if, if that's true, then the opposite of that is also true. And, and love is not possible without a relationship with God. Now, when I say that, um, right away, this is, this is the one I think is the most challenging. And and way to go, Bible, making it the first one. Um, but but the, as, as we start off here, this idea of love is not possible without a relationship with God. Just remember, because I don't want to lose you here, we are talking about the highest ideal of love. We are talking about the love that God has shown and desires for us to show to each other. In, in earlier in 1 John, in chapter 2, there's this point where, where John says, anyone who loves the world does not love me and I do not abide in them. There is this picture of love and the reality is we either love God or we love something besides God. And so it's possible to love other things, but if we love other things, that love is such a lesser, it is such a pale imitation of the love that we can experience in a relationship with God and the love that God has provided for us. And and so the idea here is not that it's impossible to love outside of God, but it's impossible to experience love at its fullest outside of a relationship with God. We go on. In this 
the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation, um, it, it's, it's the idea of atonement. Um, it, it means covering of a debt. And, and so it's, the idea is that when God sent his son, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, when Jesus died on the cross, his blood served to cover the debt of our sins. And, and so that is what this is talking about. And, and the starting point, when I look at what love is out of this passage, I see love is an action done for someone else. And, and this is something that, that when we think about who God is, God is perfect and God is unchanging. Those two things are consistent through the whole Bible. There is not a different God present in Genesis 1 than in Revelation 22. We may struggle with the idea of how the Trinity fits in all this, but, but guess what? The more you study, study the Trinity, you don't come away like, wow, this is really easy. You come away marveling at the God who is all of these things, who is perfect, who is holy. The, there is a God that has done an action for us that he receives nothing in response that he needs. That is a picture of the Bible. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God could have just, all right, let's be done. Let's start over. I'll just make a new creation. That would have been entirely within God's right, and it would have not at all been like evil of God to do that. But God instead makes a promise to a serpent that he is someday going to end the world or put an end to that evil that the serpent brought in. And, and so there is this picture that forms there. And the thing is, God makes these promises to us. And so God, and we talked about this last week, when God makes a promise, when he says something, he will do it. But God does not love us because he needs us to love him. God does not love us because he needs us to love him. God was not in heaven like long before creation saying, you know what, I'm, I'm really hopeful that someday I will have a relationship with this guy named Matt. I can picture him now. He will fulfill me relationally. Like I, I it's not true. And I could use all of your names for this too. Um, God, God was not in heaven thinking, I, I'm so lonely. We know that God is perfect. And if he's perfect, then he can't have need. He, needs, he doesn't need to change. And, and since God is perfect and unchanging, it, it means that that doesn't change. God, through all eternity, was not so bored that he said, I better create something. And then, oops, it went wrong. I better, eh. like, I, I, God is not flippant like that. When God did what God did, he did it as this action for us. When he sent his son, it was an action for us. It did not fulfill anything for God except that promises that God made for himself. It, it was not so that we would fulfill some great need inside God. He was not, and, and it's, 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 I think this is really hard. Maybe you all don't think this is hard, but, but when, I, when I look at this, it's really hard for me to imagine doing something completely for someone else that in the end does not serve me at all. And I say that, and then I feel really wicked but, but even inside of the church, when I, when I like, I love on our kids, I, I hope that our kids experience love in our youth ministry, and I hope through that that they grow a relationship with God. I hope for an outcome in just about every relationship I have. And so even at my best, when I love someone, I'm hoping to see change and hoping to see growth in them. And I do think that God hopes to see change and growth in us, but in that initial action, God was not worried, like, like God in this moment was not saying, love is an action done for someone else. God was not saying, I, I'm getting something out of this. And, and in fact, we see that because it says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. When God did his action, love is not an action that requires a response. 
when God sent Jesus, it was not because we already loved him so much that he just wanted to, to just figure out a way to save us. We did not have the love for God that he has for us in the first place. And when God did this action, God did not do this action because of anything we had done or anything we will do. God did this action of love by sending his son to be the atonement for sin because God said he would do that. And so God did that. And this loving action did not require our response, but praise the Lord, we're allowed to respond to it. As we keep going, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Love is, this idea, love is perfected when it's multiplied. So, so when God is in us, the, the idea here is that, that it's not that Jesus' loving act is not a loving act until we respond to it, but the idea is we realize and understand, and, and it becomes more and more perfect to us as we live it out for others. The idea of loving one another is the best way we can love God. Because the way that we love God is through showing, God, you have done this perfect act of love for me. And so I am going to do this act of love as best as I can for others because I recognize what you have done for me. Therefore, I am going to do it for others. Now, you may go immediately back to the idea, Matt, like two seconds ago, you said that it does not require a response. Love does not require a response. And I believe that. But I also believe when you... Oh, that's an infant thing. I thought I messed up something on the screen. Uh, so, shoot. Um, so, when you, when you read this, there's this word ought. Um, and this word ought, it's like the idea of obligation or something. Um, and um, th- this idea of ought here is, is not trying to tell us we have to do this. But it is trying to tell us that, that if we have experienced this love, how can we help but do anything but help others experience it too? How can we do anything but how can we settle for anything less than trying to love the way that we have been loved? And, and so love is a perfected when it is multiplied, but love is not perfected through forced action. Now this is really important. Um, I have a perfect illustration of this on my birthday. So probably at about 8 a.m. this morning, my, eh, she probably woke up earlier than that. My mom woke up this morning. It's Matt's birthday today. And so all of my siblings got a text this morning that said, it's your brother's birthday. <laughs> Sometimes, sometime towards the end, mom, I love you, because she'll probably listen to this, but sometime towards the end of today, she will text me and say, did your brothers and sisters call you? She is looking for a report. And um, now, I am sure all of my siblings love me, and I love them, but whenever I get that text from my mom, what happens in here is this idea of, well, now if I, now if I call them at 8 a.m., like I, I'd have to call them earlier than that if I wanted to beat my mom to telling me, you have to do this. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, well, now this is forced because mom told me to do it. I wanted to do it already, but now I don't because now I'm doing it because my mom told me to do it. Um, and, and, and that idea of forced action here is I think what we're talking about, love is not perfected through forced action. If the action that Jesus took required us to respond in order for it to be perfect, if it required for us to love God back, then what God really loves is just himself. If, if I do an act, if I say to Jess, I love you, just to hear her say, I love you too, 
then really I just, I just want to hear that I'm loved, and so I just kind of love me. And, and so that's an idea. We have to kind of wrestle with this idea. This is challenging. This is hard. But many of the actions that we do out of love, we really do out of love for ourselves, or many of the things we do, we do out of obligation rather than love. And, and this gets very difficult because we are human. Um, if I had like five hours, we would go into these different places in First John where you see these pictures of how, how at our best, our heart is going to condemn us because we cannot perfectly love on our own. But the good news is, is, is our God is greater than our own hearts. And the spirit he gave us is greater than our hearts. And so God supplies us with help in order to follow after this ideal love that he has presented, even as on our own, we can't. And, and so I want to encourage you as we keep going, like if you're feeling like, Matt, I, this is hard, we should feel like that, but we should also more and more feel awe at the love that we have experienced from God. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Now, as we come to this, this word abide means like dwelling together. Jess and I abide in the same household. We do. We live together. She's looking at me like that, that's news to her. But, but we abide together. Um, and the idea of abiding with God is... Um, this idea that we are in such a close relationship. We live together. We are with him. He is with us. It's the idea of close relational connection. And so love is evidenced by God abiding in us. And and that evidence of God abiding in us comes in the form of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is something, if we could go deep into 1 John, we would look at these pictures of how the Holy Spirit helps us and empowers us to love. And, and the Holy Spirit is evidence that we're moving towards a right definition of love. But, but at the starting point, love is evidenced by God abiding in us. And, and if that is true, the other, the other side of this is that love is not accomplished outside of Jesus. Because you cannot have the Holy Spirit without Jesus. If you do not confess Jesus as the Son of God, the Holy Spirit is foreign to you. you. You cannot have it in you because of our sin. And because Jesus had to atone for our sin, we cannot experience this love and cannot have the Spirit in us until that sin is taken care of. And, and so today, as we keep going, I do want to encourage you, if you are here today and you do not know, you have not confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he is not resurrected King in your life, um, after the service, come find me. I will drop everything to talk to you. I talked to Rich or one of our other pastors or elders, and, and we would just love to talk to you about that relationship with Jesus because we want everyone to be able to experience this love that starts with confessing who Jesus is. And so love is not accomplished outside of Jesus, this perfect ideal of love. Anyone who pursues something besides Jesus cannot eventually, they cannot come to this love through other means. Jesus says in John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The weight of that is that for us, who, if we have experienced the love that Jesus offers, we need to recognize that, that those who have not met Jesus, those that do not have a relationship with him, those that do not confess him as Lord and Savior, have no way of experiencing this love unless we love them enough to tell them about it. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, I love this verse so much, the idea that we can know and believe 
the love that God has for us. Because the picture that comes to my mind here is when I was younger, God's love was nebulous. Like it was like a thing that I knew existed, but, but it was something that, that I just, I, I always kind of wondered about. And I, I, I had this picture in my mind of like, God loves me, but, but have I done enough to earn enough love? Like, does he love me enough? Do, do, I, do I actually understand what it means that God loves me? And, and the answer is love is knowable and believable. The love that God has for us, it's, it's knowable and believable. And that, that means it's not, and, and this is the other side of this, love is not abstract and unattainable. And, and this is so important because one of the things that is present in the world is an idea that love is. Love is, or love. You can't really define love. You can't give love structure. You can't tell people how to love, or who to love, or why to love. You, you cannot put any restraint on love. That is the value of the world, that love exists on its own, and it's just whatever you want it to be. And, and what is sad in that is that if we live in a world where that is the highest ideal of love, then the highest ideal of love might as well be how I feel about Domino's Pizza. And, and I, I say that because the highest ideal of love that God offers is not something abstract and unattainable. It happened on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, that perfectly loving act, just, just that perfect moment, provides us with a path for eternity to a relationship with God, and that is built off of the love that God has for us. That is not built off of some abstract idea. It's not built off something unattainable that we can never really be sure of. That There's a promise on the cross and a promise at the resurrection that, that the relationship we can have with God is built on a love that is sure. And, and so love is knowable and believable. Love is not abstract and unattainable. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In my personal quest to experience the love of God when, when we first went to, to Moody, and I, I tell this story all the time, and I'm sorry, but it's the perfect example in my mind. Um, I, when we went to Moody, um, I, I was in all these classes on spiritual formation and discipleship. And in these classes, our professors would talk to us about knowing the truth of God's love, and, and I would go, okay, I need to figure that out. I need to figure out how to get a hold of that. And I treated love as a commodity, something to be earned or something to be consumed or something to be given. And, and I had this idea that the harder I studied and the more I learned about God's word and the more I spent time with God and the more I prayed and the more I did all these things, God would love me more and more and more. And the problem with this is this is a works-based salvation. This is an idea that love comes from what I do rather than love is an action done for someone else that doesn't require a response. And, and so when I, when I look at this picture, there's this reality that I feared that someday, I, that, that the love that I was chasing, I did not have. But when we look at love is perfected, because on that day of judgment, now that day of judgment, we are told in the Bible, and I mean, John is a great author on it, who wrote this book, also wrote Revelation. Um, so uh, he talks about on, on the day of judgment, there's going to be a time where God is going to judge the living and the dead. And we talked about the atonement of sin earlier. And, and for everyone that Jesus has Jesus died for everyone, but for everyone who has accepted that gift, for everyone that God abides in and they abide in God, for everyone who has confessed 
Jesus as Lord and as the Son of God and as their King and Savior. For, for everyone who has done that, on that day, even though our sin should, should just lead us to judgment, we're not going to have to experience that because the love that Jesus has given us, love at its highest ideal is eternal in nature. That moment on the cross, when we understand the full magnitude of it, what we understand in that moment is we understand that love is an eternal action. When Jesus died on that cross, he does not need to do another thing for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not say, all right, for the next 2,500 years, humanity is covered. And if the revelation hasn't happened, by, or if tribulation hasn't happened by then, I'll come back and do it again. There's no idea like that. That perfect act of Jesus on the cross, that loving moment where he died in our place, his, his blood covering our sins, if we confess him as Lord and Savior, that moment will never change. You cannot chase a higher ideal of love than that because what he has done is perfect. It is eternal in nature. We are not going to go up to heaven and like 10,000 years from now, like Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, God isn't going to go, this song is boring. You guys are gone. There's nothing like that. There's no picture like that in the Bible because the gift we have been given of this perfect love, this highest image of love that we can ever hope to attain has been done. And all we have to do is accept it and live inside of it. On the other side of this, I, I want to talk for a moment about fear. Um, this verse gets used so many ways. Um, and I, I don't have time to talk about all the bad ways it gets used, but I do want to point out one really important thing. The fear being talked about, this whole section is tied together. And the fear being talked about here is, is fear based on judgment. I don't know that you could apply this verse to any time you feel scared saying, well, then you don't have love. I, I think that would be quite a big jump to make. Um, but the idea here has to do with on the day of judgment, we should not feel fear because if we have that love perfected in us, then on that day, when we stand before God, there, there's no reason to fear because love is not compatible with fear and judgment. Because if the act of Jesus is an eternal act that we have received, then on the day of judgment, there is nothing we need to do except stand in assurance that we have that love. I think that's really cool. I, I, I look at that and I'm like, like on that day of judgment, there's not going to be as we're waiting in line to get judged. I, I, and I don't know what it's going to look like. I, you know, but I, I picture like the waiting room at the DMV. Um, I, a, a few months ago, I had to get a new license. My license was about to expire and it also did not have the right address. It was three addresses old. Um, and uh, I never get pulled over. So, I mean, that's, I got that going for me. Um, but Lord, please don't let me get pulled over today. Um, but but as, I, as I say this, when we were at the DMV, um, I was terrified that when I got up there, I was going to be told I had to do the driving test. Not because I think I'm a bad driver, but because how awful if I failed it on, like, like, what if I failed it? What if I bumped a curb too many times or something? I would be terrified of that moment or worse, not the driving test. What if I had to take the written test? Like I'd be walking to work the rest of my life. I, I, I say this because, because I, that fear in those moments is something that I think we've all experienced. But, but when we are waiting for the judgment on that day, because the love of Christ on the cross is eternal in nature, we will not wait there going, oh, I wonder if it was enough. 
Or I wonder if I did enough. There's nothing like that in our future if we live inside of this ideal of love. And that's wonderful. That's amazing. And that's something that we should just take so much assurance in. The final idea here, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, the, the picture here, love is realized through loving our brothers. Um, and, and I'm using the word brothers here. It's, it, it, you could say brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not um, gender specific in any way, shape, or form. But what is interesting is in the book of 1 John, when we come to the passage on lo- God is love, the starting illustration that John uses is the story of Cain, this guy who in Genesis 4 killed his brother because, because his brother was righteous and he was wicked. And, and, and the, the picture that begins to form out of, out of this whole passage is this picture of if we hate our brother, there, there's two things happening. One, how can you hate someone that God has loved? If God sent his son and did this perfect loving act for you and for this other person, how can you hate whom God has loved? Shame on you if you do, because God has offered this perfect love, so how on earth can you offer anything but that? That's the first side of this. And the other side of this is if you find yourself hating a brother or sister in Christ, are you hating them for their wickedness or are you hating them for your own wickedness? Because the reason Cain hated Abel, the reason Cain murdered his brother is because his brother was doing right. And instead of saying, oh, I could do right, Cain said, I'm going to kill him for doing right. There is a picture of love that forms in the book of 1 John, and one of the challenges of that picture is that we are told that the world is going to hate us for loving, because if we are loving righteously, then a world that is wicked cannot help but hate. And and so if we, who claim that we have the love of God and claim that we love God, if we look at a brother or sister in Christ and hate them, then that picture is a picture of us probably hating them because we are doing something wicked and they are doing something righteous. And, and if you are hating some, like, like I, I will tell you this, church, working as a pastor with our students, our students make some really dumb decisions. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I love them. I love them so much. And in those moments, I don't hate them in that moment. In those moments, I, I strive to help them grow in those moments and for transformation, right? Because that's, that's how we should treat that. And, and that's how with people that are under my care where I'm their shepherd, that's really easy to do. But, but if I then look at someone who is, um, if I look at someone else and I, I, I have hatred for them because they, they're not part of my flock, not part of what I'm responsible for, and I don't like the, how they're doing something, then what am I doing there except, except I'm offering up hate to someone whom God loves? This, this idea is very hard to wrestle with because when we talk about hate on, on, on the initial side of this, it's real easy. Like, I don't really hate anybody, right? Like, like I, hopefully none of you are sitting here like, oh, I don't want to look to the other side of the room because there's a lot of people over there I hate. Um, I, and I, I say this kind of jokingly, but the, the image that begins to form in First John is not just about this idea of, of hate on the level of, of strong feeling against. There's the idea of love and then the idea of hate. Uh, love is not possible for those who hate their brothers, but the idea of hate there is tied to the idea of not loving your brothers. And so if you are not loving them, the idea is that in that act of not loving them, you're moving towards hating them. 
And, and the picture that's used here, 1 John says we should love one another. It's in 1 John 3, and the, the picture that forms there is the way that we love, if, if we have a brother, uh, like Jesus loved by laying down his life for us, so we should lay down our lives for each other. And the fact that you're all here today means that you have either failed at laying down your life for each other, or you have not had the opportunity to do that. But, but the idea of laying down our lives for each other, John goes on, he doesn't just say, die for someone when the opportunity arises. He also talks about if you see a brother or sister in need, if you see them in need and you have a way to meet that need, if you have the world's goods and you can help them meet that need, and if your response is to ignore them, well, then you hate them. You cannot love a brother that you're ignoring their need and you're turning away and looking aside from their need. You cannot do that. That is, a, that is, a definite, that is the, the opposite of love in every way. And, and the challenge that John goes on from there to say is we need to love not in word and talk. I can say over and over, I love God. I love God. I love God. But, but does that show through my deeds and in truth? And that idea is do I show that over time? Do I, do I live out this ideal over time? Or is it a, it's something that I say, well, I, I do love God, but then I never show it through my actions. I believe that when we come to the heart of this whole picture, we are talking about a love that is found in action. Now, I, I've summarized all this, and then after this, I'm going to give a final definition, um, but I put this here because I know some of you take pictures, and so I'm trying to help you out because last week I kept moving too fast, and I could tell people were missing pictures, so what a loving act I did. Um, but, but so as we, as we come to the end, love is proof of our relationship with God. Love is not possible without a relationship with God. Love is an action done for someone else. Love is not an action that requires response. Love is perfected when it is multiplied. Love is not perfected through forced action. Love is evidenced by God abiding in us. Love is not accomplished outside of Jesus. Love is knowable and believable. Love is not abstract and unattainable. Love is eternal in nature. Love is not compatible with fear and judgment. Love is realized through loving our brothers, and love is not possible for those who hate their brothers. As, as we come to the end of this image, I have a definition, and, and I want to tell you all, I am a 33-year-old man who my wife is pregnant. I've never held my baby yet. I mean, I'm sure love as the idea of love in my life will continue to grow. And we have different experiences that help us see that picture better and better. But at, at its heart, at the core of love is looking at the action that Jesus did for us, which is, and, and here's my definition of love, of perfect love, of the highest ideal of love. Love is an action done for someone with no expectation of response, perfected in us through multiplication and measured by its eternal impact. When Jesus died on the cross, that was an action done for someone else. Jesus did not do that for his own gain. Jesus did that out of love for us. And, and that loving action was done with no expectation of response. And it is perfected in us through multiplication, not that the act of Jesus wasn't perfect, but we come to perfectly understand love when we do it the way that Jesus did it, when we lay down our lives for each other the way Jesus laid down his life for us, we move towards that perfect ideal of love. And finally, it is measured by its eternal impact. And, and this, this picture, I, I know as I'm talking about this, that this is something that you're probably thinking, well, how do I do that today? 
right? I, mean, I hope if all of you are thinking, I know how to do that, please talk to me right after this. But this is a hard concept. But the idea here is that in our loving actions, our goal for love and our goal for how to love others should not be motivated by how they will respond. It should be motivated instead in us by recognizing what Jesus has done and trying to do that for others so that they will do that for others. And, and if we have received this love through Jesus, if we have experienced this love, then, and, and we know that this love we have experienced and what we have from God is something that will be for all eternity, then we should do our best to make sure we are living this way and trying to help others experience this love. The idea of loving our brothers does not just extend in these walls. If you hate someone inside of this church, I challenge you, that's a major heart check, but I'd also challenge you, if this is a a perfect picture of love, if what we've talked about today is a perfect picture of love, and if the idea of love is something that is, is only for those who have confessed Jesus, have a relationship with God, have the Holy Spirit in them, then what we should take from this sermon is first we should take awe and wonder of the God who did this for us, even though we offered nothing back except to accept and receive it and to carry it out to others. We, we didn't fulfill some need in him, but instead he fulfilled a need for us. And, and we should not just live in awe and wonder of that, but we should try and tell others about what fills us with such wonder. Let me tell you about the way that God has loved me. It is so perfect and so complete and lasts for all eternity, this moment where he loved me on the cross. And so I want to tell each and every person that I see about this same kind of love, and I want to dwell in that love, and I want to help others dwell in that love, and I want to be a part of a community of people who dwell in that love. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the gift of your love. We thank you that if we are those who have experienced your love, then, then you dwell in us, and we can dwell in you You've given us your spirit. You've given us a perfect love that is beyond anything that we could ask or imagine. And, and we thank you so much that, that you have made that love knowable through the actions of your son on the cross. We pray as we go out that we would be people who, who live inside this love and, and who recognize the love you have for us. And out of the wonder of your love, we share it with others and have it realized more and more fully in us just the amazing gift you've given us in your love. We, we pray that we would live more and more for others the way that you have modeled, and we pray that we would be willing to just lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters and, and for, for just all that they would come to know you. We thank you for that perfect gift that we have assurance, and we have assurance for all eternity, and we pray that we would not become complacent in that, but would instead just declare the love you have for us and the love that you desire to have with all. It's in your name we pray. Amen.